You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited to speak with Dad Marty about how to define and develop an ABM approach to drive business objectives. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Asher. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, really excited to be here. Thank you. And thank you for being gracious with your time and sharing some wisdom with us. Now, before we dive in, can you share with our audience, who is Global, by the way, a little bit about who, who you are and how you got to where you are? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, you know, as I look back over the last 20 years or so here, um, I, I've had the fortunate opportunity to lead teams and strategy on on kind of a variety of different perspectives, marketing, sales, and operations. And I think that's really given me a unique perspective. Um, and, and it's been done both in large enterprise companies as well as small businesses. So I've seen kind of that a different approach and the different hats you have to wear. So um, I'd say over the last decade or so, I've um, been with ADP. And you know I currently lead our demand marketing center, uh, which is a central team that's across all of our business units. And what we do is we develop and drive revenue opportunity uh, for our sales and marketing teams using demand gen campaigns, ABM methods, technology, and other approaches. Um, I'd say, um, you know, as I've kind of gone through the journey of of growing within business, um, I've certainly seen evolution of certainly technology and how that's kind of evolved for digital and for uh, sales and marketing and, and the approaches there. But also in terms of like people, um, I, I led a, a sales development team here and I certainly have found ways to kind of leverage a different kind of approach to to driving efficiencies for marketing and sales through leveraging people in, in that process. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of work, but I'm sure it's extremely fulfilling because you've actually done it all yourself and helped teams become successful. So kudos to you. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right, let's dive in. So let's talk a little bit about collaboration and alignment between marketing and sales. Uh, There have been many folks on here that have had different viewpoints. We'd love to learn about your viewpoints. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the perspective that I'll look at here um, is more where I think ABM account-based marketing has really kind of taken off in the last few years and, and how um, I've been able to kind of look at this a bit differently as a, an approach to take. And you know, as I look back to, um, you know, there have been components of ABM that I've actually done with you don't even think about because, you know, it wasn't called ABM at the time. So you go back and you look and say, well, you know, people are calling it ABM now. So there's all these kind of components that you kind of look back and see. But as I look at like alignment for marketing and sales and collaboration, one of the first things, you know, you certainly want to look at is um, is how sales and marketing always get involved in the same initiatives. Um, you know, at times you'll find traditionally marketing will work on certain initiatives and sales will work on something separately. Um, but when I look at an approach here, you have to have both involved. And, and ABM is no different. ABM just makes it more pronounced. 
I know marketing's in the name, ABM, account-based marketing, but it is definitely a, both a sales and marketing approach. And honestly, um, as you look at traditional lead gen or demand gen or even sales enablement, having both teams involved and coordinated and in an agreement on things like definitions and timing, activation of channels, all of those things help to establish like a mutual goal. Um, and, and again, it gets just more pronounced in ABM. Now, I mentioned earlier, I've been fortunate to, to span roles in both sales and marketing and operations as well. I think it's helped me develop that perspective, understanding that unique challenge uh, and the needs of both groups when we target buyers. And um, when, I, when I find like alignment starts to die is like when you think of um, some traditional marketers might think, hey, my job ends when I generate a lead and I hand it off to sales and I walk away. And it's really not to, uh, marketing needs to continue on or, or sales thinks, hey, I know everything about my account, so don't touch it. Tells marketing to stay away. When they get territorial, um, they lose that opportunity uh, to really align with what buyers are doing because no matter what, there's a symbiotic relationship there. Whether they know it or not or care about it or not, the buyer doesn't care. The buyer just wants to learn and gain information. And whether they get that information from sales or marketing, it doesn't matter as long as it's helping them move their process forward. And of course, you want that to be consistent and aligned as best as possible. So um, so creating that is, is extremely important. Um, now, I, you know, I think uh, when I think about like starting from the marketing side and trying to drive an ABM approach, uh, it takes some flexibility and it really depends on how the company culture is. Um, you know, for example, like if sales is very territorial on their accounts, you may have to pitch ABM as a pilot and explain, hey, we're going to test this out. We're going to concentrate marketing focus and investment uh, to help you on the sales end of it. And, you know, you could do that by leveraging data, certainly. Um, data is a critical factor because uh, there's so much activity and in, in data intelligence today that we can gain from digital marketing. And you bring that to the table with sales and you can open their eyes to the possibilities right, of what ABM can do. Because, again, whether they know it or not, buyers are likely surfing their websites or interacting with content, attending events, things like that. And it may not be specifically driven by that sales rep. Uh, but the buyers are doing it. And the more intelligence they have and the more kind of alignment on that approach, the better experience that buyer will have. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, in want to double down on one piece of it. So as you mm -hmm. get the teams to collaborate, do both teams also share in the success of the outcome as in they get paid the same way-ish? It's a great question. Yeah, and... It really depends on kind of, I think, some of the structure. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about, um, I mentioned sales development, you know, previously. And, and I've had that role sit on both sales and marketing as well. Um, it, it, we've we've kind of compensated it based on, or I looked at compensation based on kind of the goal or the outcome of, of that role, right? So on a sales development rep, uh, part of their goal could be to generate the meeting, the first appointment, those kind of things. So, you know, we may be looking at compensation or you know, based on that. Yep. So it's not necessarily always the same exact piece. Now, when I say, you know, I think about results um, and revenue generation. Yes, that's that's where both teams, if they're aligned, they will look at um, how does this ultimately lead to a sale? If that sale takes 18 months, that's okay. Because, you know, we know that's the path in the journey of, of buying. So if marketing is driving the first 12 months of that 18 month cycle, that's completely fine as, as long as it's leading to the ultimate end goal of sales. What we but, want. but but you, you don't advocate putting marketing on a commission plan. 
Um, I think it depends on um, some of the cycles sometimes. Like, you know, if we're talking about a transitional B2B, um, more of a transactional B2B type of sale, perhaps like you can do that. Um, when we're looking at what I just kind of mentioned, an 18, yep. 18 yes. month yes. cycle, it's very difficult to do that with a marketing team, yes. which may not realize, you know, a sale, you know, until much, much later. So uh, I think it also depends on on some of that buyer cycle, as well as kind of, again, aligning those goals that are, you know, there could be micro goals that make more sense yes. from that standpoint. No, totally. A good point. And so I guess let's talk a little bit about the role of data and like data driven practices in your ABM approach. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mentioned data is, you know, a, a very critical factor. Uh, and there's just, again, so much intelligence we can gain now with digital marketing. I mean, we can see who clicks on emails, who visits the website, who reviews content, um, and, and you know, even the types of roles or accounts that may be doing those activities, all valuable information to establishing, you know, an approach uh, to ABM. And, and any kind of, again, targeting efforts. Um, I think when you look at the first party data that you may be collecting today, um, whether it's in your marketing automation platform, your sales CRM, or even your, your website, um, identifying that audience and what they do and how they may even like um, perform over time uh, makes a difference in terms of forming an approach, right? Like we may, you may find that um, buyers tend to, you know, take two or three visits before they kind of get information or generate as a lead or anything like that. And so when you start to understand kind of that cycle of behavior, you can kind of tailor your efforts in that direction. You know, it may say it may take, you know, six months or it takes three months to do that. And it takes um, somewhere between eight to 10 responses to your marketing efforts. Now, I've seen some interesting stats out there from different um, uh, industry experts, whether it's Gartner or Forrester or any of those, um, where it can take upwards of you know twenty plus touches or something like that to generate an opportunity. You marry that up with what you may see in your own data and say, well, how many responses that it takes? Just because you put twenty things out into the market doesn't mean you're going to get twenty responses. So does it take twenty responses to get eight? And does that eight responses turn into an opportunity? Um, those are the kind of things, again, inform you in the data to yep. create an approach, determine how long it takes and how much investment you might want to put into your channel efforts. Yeah, um, it's, it's very okay. interesting because somebody sent me this picture yesterday, literally yesterday, and and there was like, and I've never heard of this, right? But the they broke this data journey in a maturity curve to say that most people start with being data informed. And then they go with data driven, and then they're like they get to data led. Um, and when we post this, I'll actually post this picture with the, your your post. Uh, but I thought that was very interesting for somebody to actually uh, you know articulate it like that. And it sounds like you kind of gone through the same journey. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still on the journey, right? Like it's it's something that uh, constantly changes. You know, um, it's a moving target all the time. As soon as you kind of establish a best practice. It becomes everybody's best practice, and then it, you know it, it becomes spam. In many ways, exactly, right? <laughs> right. So you have to kind of adjust yet again, right? Because yeah. buyer behaviors change, or they get desensitized to something. Um, so completely, it's always an evolution uh, all the time. Um, and, and I, you know, one of the interesting things, you, the last thing you just said was like the whole data led. Um, I, I'd probably say there's just a little bit of there's a caveat to that too, right? Um, being too data driven could kind of drive sometimes a um, analysis paralysis. It could, yes. kind of, you know, 
it could drive um, too much. Like one of the things that like um, I've looked at in terms of like, for example, personalization, you know, you may have a target audience and you, you look at the attributes of that audience and say, I want to personalize and, you know, really get that mantra of right content, right time, right place, right? That whole thing. And, and then there's like 80 different things you can personalize on. There's no way you can do all those things, yes. right? So you're, you have to prioritize those, those elements and decide, okay, which are the two most important ones right now? Let's start there, right? Yes. Because that's a lot of data now. You're, you're being, if you're too data-led, you may say, okay, I'm going to do all 80 things. It takes you a year to develop it. And by the time you're done, the content's stale, the market has shifted, everything's changed, right? So I'm, I'm more of a proponent of get something out the door that starts to learn and then from there build upon it. Absolutely. I mean, when I first saw this, my gut reaction was data-driven but gut-led. And that's actually a better way to do this because <laughs> at a certain time, you have to make a call, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I, I want to stress this point out and get some your feedback for this because there's a bunch of future executives that are listening to this podcast and you have to take or make the call, right? Like you just take a decision, make the call, because if you keep waiting, you will keep waiting forever. Mm-hmm. And like you just rightly said, the content goes stale, the buyers moved on, all these things are happening. And again, this, a lot of like our audiences in B2B, so it's it's okay if you make, made a mistake, you can just correct it and get the iterative process started. You learn from it. You absolutely learn from it. And and you have to build that into your plan. Like you, yes. you build it into the plan to say, like my first iteration may not be right or may not be for everybody, but it's a starting point, right? And yes. then you build upon that branch um, every time. So, I, I mean, I, I've done, you know, that before. Like we've gone through that that experience and that unfortunately found out the bad way is, you know, we thought of all the scenarios, say, hey, let's build these six different branches of, you know, the scenarios we want to do. And it took all that time. And not only did the content get stale in some places, but it's also – well, okay, and then we turn it all on and like two people went into this one branch or this pathway and you're like, oh, we spent all that effort and really there's nobody going there. And that's because you didn't start from kind of where the volume or the need is. You started from well, more of an That right there, there, my friend, is what they call experience. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you, you got to kind of do it sometimes. <laughs> exactly. There's no way, there's just no way for you to know everything. It's just, it's just no. hard. So, all right, let's talk about ideal customer profile and specifically your views on defending the ICP. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of it comes with how you um, develop that ICP, that ideal customer profile. Um, I, I think, you know, for me, what I've you know seen, again, is kind of that balance. You definitely need data and it, it's a huge critical impo- component of it to make it defendable. Um but you also need that art piece of it, the the gut piece to tell you, like, is it the right thing? Is it the right kind of approach? Um, you know, when, when developing an ICP, like one of the first things I do, and this is kind of like it goes back to the sales and marketing alignment as well. Is like, you, you know, as a marketer, you might approach sales or vice versa, I guess. But you can go to sales and you say, hey, you know, what's what's a key business objective, you know, for sales this year? And they may say, well, you know, my key objective right now that one of them is to grow client, you know, upsell an opportunity and that dollar amount there. Okay. So the next question could be, or my next question would be like, you know, where do you believe that upsell opportunity is going to come from? And they may say, well, selling these specific solutions to our current clients. 
Okay. And then the last question I might say is, okay, well, what are the ideal account fits then for those, for those solutions? Now you've aligned a business goal all the way to the ICP. Yep. And then by then, like it's, it's easy to defend if you develop the right kind of ICP because you're, you're basically saying, well, you know, you've told us where the business need is. We develop a fit for that. So if you try to change out or add or, you know, try to fit somebody in there that's not a fit, then, then it's, you know, just, you're defeating the purpose of what we're kind of going after here. So um, I think that's a starting point, right? And then developing the actual ICP, uh, I mean, it's again back to data. I, you can look at historical sales to build lookalike mile, models. Um, you can look at win-loss analysis of what's happened in the last year. Um, you can look at uh, even lead rejection analysis and see why you know buyers aren't moving forward. Um, you could uh, again go back to some of the digital activity and decide like you know are there timeframes that take time for this to, to kind of build up. There's all of those components, but um, but even beyond the data, um, one of the key things again back to alignment and and the use of the data and the gut feeling piece is to establish some process with sales to to review it. Um, you know, you may build a beautiful looking ICP based on, you know, eight different key data elements. Um, and, but that's all on paper. And it's also that the accuracy of that data, like we don't know, sometimes that accuracy, the data is not perfect, right? So you, you send it through sales and I've I've certainly done this as a way, as a best practice is let them kind of gut check it, right. And say, okay, if I'm looking at a hundred accounts here to go after, and that's our, we think are the high value accounts for us you know, gut check it for me. And they can often come back with some things that say, well, I know that this company just signed a five-year deal with somebody or, or this company is merging right now with another company. So they're not going to be able to make decisions here anytime soon. Like those are the kind of ground level intelligence that sales can provide. Um, you just got to be careful sometimes, right? Because it could yes. still fall back to the sales territorial piece where they just say, oh, take these 10 out because I don't want you touching them. Yep. Or, or those kind of components. So you do have to establish some guidelines of like what's a knockout and what's not. No, in, in, insightful. It sounds like you've had in, enough experience or maybe uh, really good experience in, let's call it, negotiating with sales teams. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a key part of it, right? And I'm, again, the unique perspective I've had is I've, I've sat on both sides of the fence there. So it helps kind of uh, understand some of that challenge. Yes. But, you know, when it comes to like that piece, like if you if you've established that uh, negotiation, the alignment with sales, the data driven kind of choices that you make to establish the ICP, um, what you'll find is one you'll you'll easily be able to defend it, right? Because you know the guts of it. But the folks that you're working with, and I've seen this firsthand, sales will defend it, you know, for themselves, you know. I've seen it firsthand where, you know, we go and say, here's the ICP we're, we're working on and here's what we're going to focus on for this ABM effort. And you'll get, you know, certain sales leaders or teams look at it and say, well, I only have one account in there. I don't have enough coverage, right? So they'll start to go back to the tactics of, okay, can I add my accounts to this approach and everything else? And I've seen, you know, sales leaders, you know, push back and defend it themselves and say, listen, like, you know, it's based on, best fit and science and as much as we can. And so we don't want to dilute those efforts because you're basically then going back to, to, you know, batch and blast marketing. Like everybody gets the same message. doesn't matter if you're fit or not. Right. So it defeats that kind of purpose as well. Batch and blast. That's a new one. I've not heard it. I'm going to, I'm going to take that. (laughs) No problem. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about 
designing a program to orchestrate marketing and sales channels. And this one is cool because the sales channels, I feel like the sales channels, the marketing channels are the same channels now, right? Like anybody can create a video. Uh, we're both on a podcast. Like, you know, it's 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 the it's what was marketing is sales and what was sales is marketing. Kind of like that's how I look at it. But your what's your view? No, I agree. There's a lot of crossover. Um, and, it, you know, kind of I think of the visual, the old visual, right, of the sales and marketing handoff, right? Marketing is all early funnel and then they hand off to sales. And that's really not the case, right? It's the funnel is like together. Like you're always like maybe sales does a lot more in the end and marketing is a lot more up front. But there's always, a, you know, channels that are open on both sides throughout the yep. entire buyer's journey, right? Um, so, you know, obviously establishing the ICP is a critical milestone, developing the go-to-market approach, the channels and the orchestration. It's the next big step, right? And, and how to do that. Again, this is where data could help. You know, you may find that uh, historical, you may find that certain channels work really well with buyers that look alike in this space. You may find that um, certain content resonates better or, or doesn't resonate as well. So those are certain ways that you can leverage data and, and behavior of past information that you may have in your database. Um, you know, like my key advice here, and this is what I kind of said earlier is, you know, start somewhere, you know, yes. build from there. Like, you know, you can think of like the 80 different scenarios, but, you know, maybe start with the two, you know, get a learning out there. And, and, and that's what I'd love to establish most of the time is like, start there. Like, you know, I build one path, build one kind of experience. And then if I find an important audience, either not engaging or engaging, then I say, okay, I may need to personalize that experience a bit better for them and build another branch. Now I'm, I'm building upon what I have and what I've already built is already established. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to kind of like do that, but it, it can be really daunting, like I said, to look at all the data, but, you know, starting with some priorities and then building upon them, not thinking, hey, I'm building this and then it's done and I got to build the next thing. Build upon it. Like that experience you built for the buyer, whether it's an always on channel like the website or um, limited, you know, paid media, whatever that is, um, you know, you could adjust that as you kind of learn from from what uh, what the buyer behavior looks like. And I would love to know your favorite sales and marketing channel. Everybody's got theirs. Uh, you mean in terms of combined together? No, just separate, right? So oh. Like on the sales side, you know, and on the marketing side. And I'll share mine too. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I've, um, I would say, you know, like it's hard to still get away from email. Like I think it's just such a huge channel that, um, that provides a lot of opportunity. Now it, it could be well overused, of course. Um, and, you know, if you, if we put it in the hands of a sales tool, sometimes it gets abused even. So, you know, putting some guidelines to that, you know, makes a lot of sense. But, you know, to me, I think, you know, that's still an important channel that kind of drives a lot of activity and connects a lot of things too, um, whether it's driving to the site or as a follow-up to an event or certainly promoting an event or uh, a follow-up to um, advertising or media or engagement. Um, to me, I just think there's some, there's some you know, really good connective tissue that that channel has. And so it tends to be one of my favorites to look at. And then there's an art to it, of course, like you're only in the inbox for, you know, uh, a certain amount of time. You got to stand out with a subject line. You know, there's a lot of like interesting art that, 
people debate on all the time. Long copy, short copy, calls to action, buttons, design, no design, text. Like, um, I think those all those iterations just kind of like fascinate me at times. Yeah, I mean, so when I joined Demand Matrix, the company that sponsors this, right? We would say, wow, we have like really high open rates. Like, what is going on? Our open rates are through the roof, right? And and I'm like, I've never seen open rates like this before. And turns out, you know, all the scanners for email are just reading it before it gets to the the people and the scan filtering things out. Oh yeah, and that counts as open rates, right? And that's where I learned. Well, here's what the fallacy from high open rates are. But well, I still believe whether you're in marketing or sales, the uh, picking the phone or having some sort of sensory message, whether it's a LinkedIn recording that you're going to send or a voice recorded text message you're going to send, or you just pick up the phone and call them. Like to me, that's still my favorite because you can share how you feel about what you're going to share on one of those sensory mediums. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like from a sales channel perspective, definitely phone. Um, and as I've had, I told you, I've had my sales development teams yep. and others. I've always trained it's phone first, phone first. And we've seen the data on this too. It's like when we make phone calls before emails, before social outreach, before all that stuff, especially if it's like in, in a follow-up to something, Yep. phone is by far the strongest conversion channel to get that kind of moving forward. And it doesn't even have to be the right rep. Like that's going to close the deal on that phone call. It has to be somebody from the company that's representing hopefully the right message. Yep. And it drives a ton of activity from that standpoint conversion. And, and so we've always trained that. Like, for example, from leads, if leads generated off of chat or a phone, I mean, or a um, off of the website, for example, you know, some reps, you know, would love to oh, I'll just email the person. Hopefully they get back to me soon. No, like we need to make a phone call within yep. minutes. And when we do that, like a conversion rates, you know, skyrocket compared to anything else. Yes. I mean, chances are people, when they do this stuff, they're probably not just doing it on your website. They may, they may be shopping around. They may be, you know, submitting forms on three different vendors and everything. If you're first in the door on the phone call, I mean, it really helps drive that sales process forward and, yes. and the buying engagement. Yes. No, 100%. Thoughts on ABM KPIs? Yeah, this is an interesting one. And we've gone through a journey on this one. And, and personally, I've gone through a journey. I mean, it's, um, you know, one of the things about measurement, I mean, and it's really critical to establish this is like, you know, we know sales is naturally account based. Yes. Uh, you know, they have a territory of accounts and their success is measured based on how each of those accounts progress to a sale. Right. Like it's it's you know, it's very simple from that standpoint. But I think for as marketers, um, we make it more complicated. We look at, you know, not only the channel conversions, like you said, like open rates and click-through rates, but we also look at campaign influence and lead generation that may convert into opportunity and sale uh, and all those different things that kind of um, sometimes muddy the waters and doesn't necessarily align exactly to what sales wants to understand. It's like, did my one account that I need to close somehow this year to stay you know, afloat here, did that actually move to a sale or not? So um, we took approach here and I looked at this as, you know, how do we look at ABM that aligns in that way and measurement that aligns that way? So uh, the progression of accounts uh, and measuring from that standpoint was extremely important. Looking at it from the standpoint of if I have 200 accounts, you know, what happens to those 200 accounts? You know, I, I don't want to understand campaign influence. I mean, campaigns are within here, right? Yep. But I want to understand, like, 
if I set out on that ICP to say, these are the 200 best fits, I better be sure that I understand like what happened to those 200 best fits, not come back and and tell sales. Well, the campaign had a, you know, a fantastic 50%, you know, open rate and, (laughs) and, and I can see like, you know, there's an influence on opportunity that goes well beyond the ICP. Like I want to, they want to know, did we do what we set out to do? And so we looked at it from a, a, a brand new kind of measurement angle of, of um, seeing like, okay, well, if I have accounts and if I see minimal activity, you know, that's a stage. If I see large amount of digital activity or maybe sales and digital activity, that's another stage. If I see them progress into a true sales engagement process, then that's another stage. Looking at it from that angle. And, and then measuring like our efforts from that standpoint, like if it's all driving to that effort, then we should see a difference. And, yes. and then, you, you know, the, the, the natural question is, well, doesn't this normally happen anyways? Can't you just kind of measure it? And, you know, it's not a concentrated effort. Well, that's where you, you do like a control group, right? And you measure, okay, so we don't do all this focused effort, but we measure the exact same way. I want to look at 200 accounts and what happens to them yep. naturally. Then you can kind of like balance and see the difference between, you know, your concentrated ABM efforts versus, you know, basically anything that could happen. They can organically come to your site and everything else. Yep. Yep. And so is it safe to say that you shifted more to like a marketing qualified account type of a setup? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, um, that is kind of the approach versus you see looking at like marketing qualified leads, which could be individuals and multiples on accounts. Um, but I think it's beyond that a little bit. And that's kind of from the learning um, that may be like an established milestone you look at in the data. Yep. Um, but it's also a moving target, as I said you yes. know, before. Um, and it, this is just like any basic scoring program that people have done through the years as well. It's like your first iteration is not usually, you know, you Correct. made a lot of great assumptions based on data, but it's, you're not always sure that's the right approach. And then you kind of learn from that. So you can find as you kind of dis- establish a you know an MQA a marketing qualified account yep. you may have set the bar too high yep. or too low and and you use like some of the sales process and feedback to understand that like you may find okay but well, it also is the co- composition of your sales teams in their territories if you've got a sales rep that has 10 accounts and you have a sales rep that has 300 accounts right there's a difference in how they approach right. their accounts so like the one that has 10 accounts you know, a few activity components may be enough for them to kind of move things forward. Whereas, you know, somebody has 300 accounts, there's no way they can do that and know every little thing that happens on every account. So Correct. you might have to pick a higher threshold in order to say this is the point where it makes sense to kind of really engage more. Yeah, it's a, it's a, the, the, the account scoring through the segments, it's... Uh, um, and then doing capacity modeling around it, you know, like people need to spend more time on it. And this is where the every revenue leader should develop some operational chops so that they can understand because what's happening on the other side is the marketers or the salesperson or the SDR's experience is also what matters because the greatest predictor Mm -hmm. of if the customer will buy, even in today's day and age, is the seller's experience that they get. They'll go through all this amazing experience, and then the salespeople, all person or professional, also needs to provide an amazing experience so that that journey continues on, right? And so, yeah, it's 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 important outside of the data. You got to make sure your your teams are happy and yeah. firing at all cylinders. 
I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's a, it's a critical component as we've seen, right. In, in any kind of industry um, study on that. Um, and and I, I've seen them take it further too. And, and you know, the idea of like the entire purchase experience, right. Um, so yeah, the sales experience and that process is, is a huge component of it. Um, and then there's um, uh, a portion that's just like table stakes. Like if you don't do these things, you're not going to even get to the sales experience, right? Like if yep. you don't have, you know, your brand aligned and, you know, some of that experience, you know, when you pick up the, or when you submit a lead form and somebody doesn't call you back for days, like those are all bad experiences. So you may not even get to the sales experience, right? Yep. <laughs> to make yep. that a factor if those table stakes aren't kind of put in place properly. So the entire like purchase experience, certainly for me, um, is something that like I like to kind of look at as a whole and decide like whether or not there are efficiencies or optimization that needs to be done there. Yeah, so very cool. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. As we always do in this podcast, because our podcast is global, the way that this started, we had an idea that we would make an actionable podcast. And we literally just went to people and asked, hey, who would be two or three other people that you would recommend that we should bring on the show? And, you know, people started sharing their friends' names. And now we are 170 plus podcasts in. Wow. It's it's a mini community of its own. Makes you know, sense. People are asking for intros to each other. We actually take the list of people who have attended because all that information is public, shared with all the new guests, make some connections. And it's really a podcast for VPs by other VPs, you know? And so who are like two or three other people that come to mind that you respect who are in either go-to-market or data science that you think we should bring onto the show? Uh, well, I mean, I've got a couple of, of folks that, colleagues that I've worked with through the years and have partnered on different things. And certainly, um, you know, it's funny because uh, uh I think I was in a, a, a talent kind of evaluation thing at one point, and they asked you a question like, you know, imagine you're, you're yourself, you're a company, right? And who's on your board of directors, right? right. And, and, and these two guys here that I'll, I'll name here, like to me, like I, I go to them still for advice today and, and it's, they're great to kind of bounce ideas off of and they do the same with me. So, you know, enjoy kind of working with these guys. Yeah. Um, one is uh, Patrick Flanagan, he was, he's, you know, um, a marketing tech and sales enablement leader, you know, certainly somebody uh, that I would, you know, recommend that you guys kind of, you know, get in touch with and perhaps, yeah. he'd, you know, be interested in talking to you guys further. And another, you know, Scott Shepard, he's again, another uh, demand and marketing tech guru, digital marketer. Like he certainly um, would be two folks. Those are the two folks that I would probably say. Um, again, kind of going back to that idea, like who's on my board of directors, yeah. these yeah. two guys are, you know, <laughs> If, if they're not on it, they're like really close to being on it, right? So they'll be right there. To, I, to my two takeaways from this podcast are Batch and Blast and what you just said there. <laughs> yeah, it's a great concept to think of. It, it really that way, is. Right? Like, yeah. I, like I used to use spray and pray, and I, I, when you said it, I'm like, makes so sense. Batch yep. and Blast, don't do Sim it. Similar concept. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And so again, you know, as we started this podcast, and it is in its evolution now the reach of this podcast is like vps across the world and those folks would love to connect with you if they find what you've shared interesting and so if they do what would be the best way for them to connect with you 
Um, I'd say probably the two easiest channels would be LinkedIn and Twitter. Like those are, I'm easily found on, on both of those. Um, you know, on Twitter, my handle is Dan Marty, but I actually spell Dan with two N's. So it's D-A-N-N-M-A-R-T-Y. So certainly if you find me there, you'll see my picture, you'll see, you know, the ability to connect, obviously to follow from that standpoint. And LinkedIn, I'm actually listed on my more, you know, traditional name, but you'll see me as Daniel Marty on, on LinkedIn. Uh, so certainly oh, I, I think Marty is, connections. Yeah, the, Marty is a first name as well, right? Oh, absolutely, it is. So, yeah, yeah. so I do you're, get you're, that you're like me, like like when you said Dan and Marty, you're like, okay, either one is fine, right? And my full name is Asher Matthew, so I have the I have two first right. names as well. People I'm get sure it people wrong. People call you day. by your last time exactly. all the time. <laughs> I do. They do it the same way with me. I don't take any offense to it. I, you know, I'm used to that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and educating us. We wish you the best of luck in your journey. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers.